BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure, the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. I am your host, Michael Ian Black. I am your friend your ear lover, your literary bon vivant. And uh, I'm joined today, as I am on occasion, by my shitty little rat dog, Jack-Jack, who has had uh, an unpleasant week. Now, those of you who are familiar with the story of Jack-Jack know that we rescued him from some hellhole in the Deep South. And Jack was never... He was not packaged the way dogs uh, up north are packaged. It's like when you go to the grocery store and you're looking for an apple, all the apples are perfect up in the supermarkets, you know. But you go to some little backcountry uh, fruit stand and you're going to see some bumpy and bruisey apples. Well, Jack was a bumpy and bruisey apple and he routinely injures himself. Uh, because his dew claws get caught when we hike, and he's always ripping them and uh, yelping and hobbling and bleeding and just making a mess of himself. So finally, Martha said, we're going to get his dew claws removed, and this will alleviate the problem and rid him of needless suffering and rid me of vet bills that keep coming every time he rips his dew claw and he has to get treated at the vet. So that happened last week and now Jack-Jack has been walking around with one of those protective cones on his neck. And the one that they gave us at the vet was a hard plastic cone that seemed to cause him a fair amount of discomfort. Uh, but then it seems we had one already that was a bright blue, more of a cloth cone. And we replaced the hard plastic one with the cloth one. And so he's been walking around for the last several days looking like he has an Elizabethan ruff around his neck. And I acknowledge there's a terrific pun in there between ruff, the neck thing that they wore in Elizabethan times, and the uh, sound that dogs make when they bark. So Jack has a... I was going to say a faintly ridiculous quality about him over the last several days. But in fact, it's just, there's nothing faint about it. He just looks ridiculous. He has a halo of bright blue 
Elizabethan ruff around him at all times. And the reason he has to wear it is because he keeps licking the area where the stitches are, as you would do if you had stitches in a place and you didn't know that you need the stitches there to properly heal. You would just be trying to constantly get rid of uh, the thread that is coming out of your body. And we have explained to him time and time again, Jack, you can't lick the stitches because you need those to heal. And he, as he always does, he ignores the good advice that we have for him. He does not know what is good for him. That's the ultimate point. The same can be said for both of our protagonists in this book, Jude the Obscure. Now, can we really say Sue is a protagonist? Uh, I'm going to say it. She's not an antagonist. She is a kind of dual protagonist looking for similar things that Jude is looking for, but because of fate and circumstance and blood, unable to reconcile her desires, just as the same, the same forces are arrayed against Jude. They're not working at cross purposes exactly. It would be better for both of them if they were, but they're not. They're both looking for the same thing, approaching it from different angles and both failing miserably at it. And that is what has given us, all of us, so much joy and the subject of so much hilarity. Now, clearly, Thomas Hardy didn't mean for this book to be funny. It's not funny. But you and I, I think we find our amusements because we're bad people. Let's just face it. We're bad people who enjoy the sufferings of others. Chapter two. Where we left them last, Jude had been looking, uh, spying on Sue. She was looking at a photograph. She, he didn't know whose photograph it was. He was hoping it was his. We don't know. Um, and then the last sentence in chapter one was, he might fast and pray during the whole interval, but the human was more powerful in him than the divine. So he's saying, there's nothing I can do. I'm just a slave to the to these passions that I have for Sue. However, this is chapter two. However, if God disposed not, woman did. The next morning, but one brought him this note from her. So here she is every other day. You know, it's basically like they just text, right? They text back and forth constantly when they're apart. Um, in, In this case, it's epistolary. You know, she's writing letters, but it's the same thing. So she writes, don't come next week. On your own account, don't. We were too free under the influence of that morbid hymn and the twilight. Think no more than you can help of Susanna Florence Mary. And when she is peevish with him, she uses all of her names. So she's she's being peevish. But she did not write either Bridehead or Phillotson. Right. She just wrote her her first and two middle names. She didn't use her last name because she does not feel herself to be a Phillotson, but knows that she is no longer a bridehead. So she does not know how to refer to herself. The disappointment was keen. He knew her mood, the look of her face when she subscribed herself at length thus. But whatever her mood, he could not say she was wrong in her view. He replied, I acquiesce, you are right. It is a lesson in renunciation, which I suppose I ought to learn at this season. Jude, right. It's the renunciation back and forth. They're constantly renouncing each other. They're constantly saying we can't meet anymore. 
and then they both agree, and then that lasts a sentence or two. He dispatched the note on Easter Eve, and there seemed a finality in their decision. (laughs) And then the very next sentence, of course, is, but other forces and laws than theirs were in operation. Right, of course. On Easter morning, Easter Monday morning, he received a message from the widow Edlin, uh uh-huh, whom he had directed to telegraph if anything serious happened, quote, and then there's a colon, and it says, your aunt is sinking, come at once. So finally, Drusilla is going under in her, what's the word? Senescence? Is that a word? You know, her old age. He threw down his tools and went. Three and a half hours later, he was crossing the downs about Mary Green and presently plunged into the concave field across which the shortcut was made to the village. As he ascended on the other side, a laboring man who had been watching his approach from a gate across the path moved uneasily and prepared to speak. I can see in his face that she is dead, said Jude. Poor Aunt Drusilla. It was as he had supposed, and Mrs. Edland had sent out the man to break the news to him. She wouldn't have knowed he. She lay like a doll with glass eyes, so it doesn't matter that you wasn't here, said he. Jude went on to the house, and in the afternoon when everything was done, and the layers out had finished their beer and gone, he sat down alone in the silent place. It was absolutely necessary to communicate with Sue, though two or three days earlier they had agreed to mutual severance. He wrote in the briefest terms, Aunt Drusilla is dead, having been taken almost suddenly. The funeral is on Friday afternoon. He remained in and about Mary Green through the intervening days, went out on Friday morning to see that the grave was finished, and wondered if Sue would come. She had not written, and that seemed to signify, rather, that she would come Oh, and that seemed to signify rather that she would come than that she would not. Having timed her by her only possible train, he locked the door about midday and crossed the hollow field to the verge of the upland by the brown house, where he stood and looked over the vast prospect northwards and over the nearer landscape in which Alfredston stood. Two miles behind it, a jet of white steam was traveling from the left to the right of the picture. In other words, there was a train coming. <laughs> why, why say it simply when you, could, when you could say it as elaborately as possible? There was a long time to wait, even now, till he would know if she had arrived. He did wait, however, and at last a small hired vehicle pulled up at the bottom of the hill and a person alighted, the conveyance going back, while the passenger began ascending the hill. He knew her. And she looked so slender today that it seemed as if she might be crushed in the intensity of a too passionate embrace, such as it was not for him to give. Two-thirds of the way up, her head suddenly took a solicitous poise, and he knew that she had at that moment 
recognized him. Her face soon began a pensive smile, which lasted till, having descended a little way, he met her. I thought, she began with nervous quickness, that it would be so sad to let you attend the funeral alone. And so, at the last moment, I came. (laughs) She's so full of shit. She is so full of shit. It's not that she's lying. It's that she's not telling the whole truth. They have never told the whole truth with each other. They are continually engaging of lies of omission. And it is that omission or those omissions which have created such heartbreak in the two of them. Such yearning. Now, what if they were to just tell the whole truth to each other? They'd be bored in five minutes. You know, I love you. I love you too. Uh, We should do it. Yeah, let's do it. They do it. And then they're like, now what? And they're like, I don't know. The great thing about Victorian literature, one of the great things, I guess, is the unceasing yearning. They do not have the tools to satisfy the deep yearnings that they possess. And so the yearnings build upon each other until all of Victorian England is just in a state of straining, desperate straining for something, some sort of satisfaction, something to make pleasant this terrible life that they are living. It doesn't matter if they're the if they're the the commoners like Jude and Sue or the landed class like all the people in the Jane Austen books. Is that the right term? Landed class, landed gentry. I don't know. Richies, you know the Richies. They all have the same yearnings, and look, we have them today too. That's why it's a classic. We recognize ourselves in them, but now we have dick pics. Okay, I'm gonna let you yearn for the show for a minute and take a break here on Obscure. Matt Besser has a new show on Earwolf called My Dead Wife, The Robot Car. It used to be available only on Stitcher Premium, but now you can hear it for free. My Dead Wife, The Robot Car is an improvised searing starring Matt Besser and Mary Holland with a cast including Horatio Sands, Danielle Schneider, Betsy Sodaro, John Gabris, Dan Lippert, and a ton more of your favorite people. When Matt signed on to be one of the first testers of self-driving robot cars, he didn't realize that the AI personality of the car's operating system was his dead ex-wife. It's like the film Her meets Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. My Dead Wife, the robot car, is out now on Earwolf for free. Check it out. Welcome back to Obscure. Sue was just telling Jude that she couldn't attend a funeral alone, you know, because it would be better if he showed up with his cousin as a date. Dear faithful Sue, murmured Jude. With the elusiveness of her curious double nature, however, Sue did not stand still for any further greeting, though it wanted some time to the burial. A pathos so unusually compounded as that which attached to this hour was unlikely to repeat itself for years, if ever, and Jude would have paused and meditated and conversed. 
But Sue either saw it not at all, or seeing it more than he, would not allow herself to feel it. The sad and simple ceremony was soon over, their progress to the church being almost at a trot, the bustling undertaker having a more important funeral an hour later, three miles off. Drusilla was put into the new ground, quite away from her ancestors. Sue and Jude had gone side by side to the grave and now sat down to tea in the familiar house, their lives united at least in this last attention to the dead. She was opposed to marriage from first to last, you say, murmured Sue. Yes, particularly for members of our family. Her eyes met his and remained on him a while. We are rather a sad family. Don't you think, Jude? She said we made bad husbands and wives. Certainly we make unhappy ones. At all events, I do for one. Sue was silent. Is it wrong, Jude? She said with a tentative tremor. For a husband or wife to tell a third person that they are unhappy in their marriage. If a marriage ceremony is a religious thing, it is possibly wrong, but if it is only a sordid contract based on material convenience in householding, raiding, and taxing, and the inheritance of land and money by children, making it necessary that the male parent should be known, which it seems to be, why surely a person may say, even proclaim upon the housetops, that it hurts and grieves him or her. I have said so anyhow to you. That's Jude talking. Presently, she went on, Are there many couples, do you think, where one dislikes the other for no definite fault? Yes, I suppose. If either cares for another person, for instance. <laughs> but even apart from that, wouldn't a woman, for example, be very bad-natured if she didn't like to live with her husband merely... Her voice undulated, and he guessed things, merely because she had a personal feeling against it, a physical objection, a fastidiousness, or whatever it may be called, although she might respect and be grateful to him. I am merely putting a case. Ought she try to overcome her pruderies? Interesting. So she's saying that she's not attracted to him. She doesn't want to put out for him. And it's not, and she's grateful to him, but look, let's be honest. He old, he's 45 or whatever. He old and she's just a young maiden and she likes him, you know, just as a guy, she respects him. She's grateful to him. But when he wants to do the do, she's like, yeah, uh, not tonight, babe, not tonight. And it is that intimacy, that physical intimacy, that is, uh, you know, it's making her unhappy. She can get no boner for Phillotson, and it's making her unhappy in her marriage. Now, we knew from the very beginning that she wasn't attracted to him. But like she said, I mean, there's a, there is a material convenience in marrying Householding, rating, and taxing the inheritance of land and money by children, uh, making it necessary that the male parent should be known. So this is a conversation that we as a culture had not too long ago when we were debating whether gay marriage should be a thing. What is the purpose of marriage? 
and is it denigrated when it is not how we understand it to be from a religious, and I mean a very strictly religious definition, which is to say the way Christians or those who objected to gay marriage said it was defined as that between a man and a woman. But in fact, there's much more to marriage than that. There is the material contract part of it. Um, there are there are reasons to be married that have nothing to do with intimacy, and sometimes that can be good, and sometimes that can be bad. And Sue is saying that aspect of it is fine, but the intimate part of it, I can't have it. Jude threw a troubled look at her. He said, looking away, it would be just one of those cases in which my experiences go contrary to dogmas. Speaking as an order-loving man, which I hope I am, though I fear I am not. Interesting. I should say, yes, speaking from experience and unbiased nature, I should say, no. Sue, I believe you are not happy. Of course I am, she contradicted. <laughs> right. When she was, yeah, right, she said, I'm, she's merely putting a case. She was not saying it's her. She wasn't saying it's her that cannot lay down with her husband. She was just saying, like, for conversation's sake, what if there were a woman like that? Shouldn't she just try to overcome her pruderies? And Jude is saying, well, on the one hand, as an order loving man, yeah, you should, because look, you're married and you just got to do what you got to do. But, uh, you know, from his own experiences, he's saying, no, you shouldn't. And then he says, you're not happy. Of course I am. She contradicted. How can a woman be unhappy who has only been married eight weeks to a man she chose freely, chose freely? Now, Jude said that. Why do you repeat it? <laughs> Why do you repeat it? <laughs> but I have to go back by the six o'clock train. You will be staying on here, I suppose. This is what I mean. It's just constant omission, 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 omission. And, you know, we, the readers, love the subtext, but it's frustrating at the same time. So she says, you'll be staying on. And he goes, for a few days to wind up Ant's affairs. This house is gone now. Shall I go to the train with you? A little laugh of objection came from Sue. I think not. You may come part of the way. But stop. You can't go tonight. That train won't take you to Shaston. You must stay and go back tomorrow. Mrs. Edlin has plenty of room if you don't like to stay here. Very well, she said. <laughs> he said dubiously. I didn't tell him I would come for certain. I mean, this is just classic Jude and Sue, isn't it? I mean, just classic J and S shenanigans. Just the hijinks are never ending with these two. How many nights have they passed together in chastity? How many evenings have they spent yearning for each other? I can think of three, I feel like, three nights where they were together and nothing happened. And, and, and Hardy makes us think, oh, this is, this is going to be the time. This is going to be the time when something great happens. And, and look how thrilled they're both going to be when they discover each other's uh, bodies and they can finally just admit rather than omit. And the sun's going to come up and roosters are going to sing and there's going to be a hallelujah chorus. But then, you know, it doesn't happen. Jude went to the widow's house adjoining to let her know, and returning in a few minutes, sat down again. 
It is horrible how we are circumstanced, Sue. Horrible, he said abruptly, with his eyes bent to the floor. No, why? I can't tell you all my part of the gloom. Your part is that you ought not to have married him. I saw it before you had done it, but I thought I mustn't interfere. I was wrong. I ought to have. But what makes you assume all this, dear? Because I can see through your feathers, my poor little bird. Her hand lay on the table, and Jude put his upon it. Sue drew hers away. That's absurd, Sue, cried he. After what we've been talking about, I am more strict and formal than you if it comes to that, and that you should object to such an innocent action shows that you are ridiculously inconsistent. Perhaps it was too prudish, she said repentantly. Only I have fancied it was a sort of trick of ours, too frequent perhaps. There, you may hold it as much as you like. Is that good of me? Yes, very. But I must tell him. Who? Richard. Oh, of course, if you think it necessary, but as it means nothing, it may be bothering him needlessly. Well, are you sure you mean it only as my cousin? Absolutely sure. I have no feeling of love left in me. <laughs> That's news. <laughs> <laughs> that's news how has it come to be oh and then he says it i've seen arabella she winced at the hit then said curiously when did you see her when i was at christminster so she's come back and you never told me i suppose you will live with her now of course just as you live with your husband and there's the double meaning yeah he'll live with her i mean he's not really i mean the least he doesn't, I mean, he knows he, she's, she's gone to go with her first husband, but now he's just, you know, he's digging at her. Yeah, I'll live with her just as you live with your husband. In other words, in misery. She looked at the window pots with the geraniums and cactuses withered for want of attention and threw them at the outer distance till her eyes began to grow moist. What is it? Said Jude in a softened tone. Why should you be so glad to go back to her if... If what you used to say me is still true, I mean, if it were true then, of course it is not now. How could your heart go back to Arabella so soon? A special providence, I suppose, helped it on its way. Ah, it isn't true, she said with a gentle resentment. You are teasing me. That's all because you think I am not happy. I don't know. I don't wish to know. If I were unhappy, it would be my fault my wickedness, not that I should have a right to dislike him. He is considerate to me in everything. And he is very interesting from the amount of general knowledge he has acquired by reading everything that comes his way. Do you think, Jude, that a man ought to marry a woman his own age or one younger than himself, 18 years as I am than he? It depends on what they feel for each other. He gave her no opportunity of self-satisfaction, and she had to go on unaided, which she did in a vanquished tone, verging on tears. I, I think I must be equally honest with you as you have been with me. Perhaps you have seen what it is I want to say, that though I like Mr. Phillotson as a friend, I don't like him it is a torture to me to live with him as a husband. There, now I have let it out. I couldn't help it, although I have been pretending I am happy. 
Now you'll have a contempt for me forever, I suppose. She bent down her face upon her hands as they lay upon upon the cloth and silently sobbed in little jerks that made the fragile three-legged table quiver. I've only been married a month or two, she went on, still remaining bent upon the table and sobbing into her hands, and it is said that what a woman shrinks from, in the early days of her marriage, she shakes down to with comfortable indifference in half a dozen years. But that is much like saying that the amputation of a limb is no affliction since a person gets comfortably accustomed to the use of a wooden leg or arm in the course of time. (laughs) God, she really doesn't want to fuck this guy. (laughs) Oh, boy. Okay, Uh, I'm going to take a break. This is Obscure. That that may be my new favorite pronunciation. You are listening to Obscure, and Sue was just telling Jude and all of us about how hard it is for her to screw her husband, and it made me laugh. But let's see how Jude responds. Jude could hardly speak, but he said, I thought there was something wrong, Sue. Oh, I thought there was. But it is not as you think. There is nothing wrong except my own wickedness. I suppose you'd call it a repugnance on my part for a reason I cannot disclose. And what would not be admitted as one by the world in general. What tortures me so much is the necessity of being responsive to this man whenever he wishes, as he wishes, good as he is morally. The dreadful contract to feel in a particular way in a matter whose essence is its voluntariness. I wish you would beat me or be faithless to me or do some open thing that I could talk about as a justification for feeling as I do. But he does nothing except that he has grown a little cold since he has found out how I feel. That's why he didn't come to the funeral. Oh, I am very miserable. I don't know what to do. Don't come near me, Jude, because you mustn't. Don't. Don't. But he had jumped up and put his face against hers, or rather against her ear, her face being inaccessible. I told you not to, Jude. I know you did. I only wish to console you. It all arose through my being married before we met, didn't it? You would have been my wife, Sue wouldn't you, if it hadn't been for that? Instead of replying, she rose quickly and saying she was going to walk to her aunt's grave in the churchyard to recover herself, went out of the house. Jude did not follow her. Twenty minutes later, he saw her cross the village green towards Mrs. Edlin's, and soon she sent a little girl to fetch her bag and tell him she was too tired to see him again that night. In the lonely room of his aunt's house, Jude sat watching the cottage of the widow Edlin as it disappeared behind the nightshade. He knew that Sue was sitting within its walls, equally lonely and disheartened, and again questioned his devotional motto that all was for the best. Well, I guess I'll stop there. Well, he finally, you know, he said something. He said, you would have been my bride, wouldn't you, Sue, if it hadn't been for my 
mistake in marrying Arabella if it hadn't been for that fateful day when she threw a pig's dick at me. How many of us have married or been with people for reasons that did not constitute the holiest of reasons, whether it was convenience or financial help or lust or some other excuse that put us together with somebody who is wrong for us in one way or another. On the other hand, can there be said to be a person who is totally right for us? And if so, how do we determine that? I mean, is it because you always get along? I know that can't be the reason. Because, you know, even the best, the best matched people must bicker about something. If you don't, it seems to me you've married yourself. And that doesn't sound very healthy. Although even people who are so alive, I mean, I argue with myself all the time. I can't imagine anything worse than marrying myself. I don't know. I don't know if I believe in the idea of a soulmate or of a person who is, I believe, look, there are people that are just wrong for you totally and utterly. And, and we kind of know those people, they drive you crazy. But at the same time, uh, I don't believe that there's only one person who is just right for you, that a lot of people can be right for you. And that you, in any relationship, the work that you're doing is much more about yourself than it is about the other person. And that you're learning to love yourself as, in, as much as you are learning to love the other person and how to love the other person. That's why my marriage is a disaster, because I can't stand myself. I mean, look, it's ending philosophically, guys. I didn't mean for that to happen. Jack-Jack has his blue ruff on. His head is resting on the top of the reading throne. And he has taken a position of attentive listening, I would say, though his eyes be closed. I think he enjoys the book more when he is... When he when he can he can shut out the world visually and just enjoy it with his perky little ears. And the relationship between Jack and I, I have not worked on myself enough to love him. And currently I'm resenting the amount of money that I had to pay to the vet so that he can resent me for having his dew claws removed. This is a relationship of resentment where one is hurting the other. Aggressively and passively, passively and aggressively. But I'm going to give him a little scratch on the head and I'm going to pet his soft little ears and let him know that I am here. And he's not even opening his eyes as I caress his little head. So Jude and Sue are spending the night in Mary Green after the funeral, separated by only a few yards. But it may as well be an ocean because they cannot ever be together. But I hope you will join us again for another heartrending episode of Obscure. Until then, I wish you adieu. Obscure is brought to you by Earwolf. For more information on Obscure, visit our show page at Earwolf.com and be sure to subscribe to Obscure in your favorite podcast app like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts so you don't miss an episode. And you can talk to us at Obscure with Michael Ian Black at gmail.com. Obscure is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and Robin Lynn, who also mixed and edited today's show with music composed 
by Craig Wedgren. Special thanks to everyone at Earwolf, especially Chris Bannon, Colin Anderson, and the Earwolf engineer team of Brett Morris, Sam Kiefer, and Ryan Connor. If you would like information about sponsoring our show, email hello at midroll.com from the wilds of Connecticut. I'm Michael Ian Black. Dolly, y'all! This is Tony Rodriguez. This is Carlos Santos. This is Riza Licea. And this is Oscar Montoya. When our powers combine, we are Spanish Aquí Presents! We have a brand new podcast here on Earwolf bringing you the best of the best of lo mejor of the Latinx comedy. Join us every Tuesday as we chat about what's going on in our lives, Latinx culture, and ¿qué es lo que? Lo que no está picando. Lo que te pica. Don't worry, we'll tell you what that means if you listen. We'll also be joined by a new guest every single week. We'll get to know a little bit more about their lives. Every single week. Uh-huh. And then we'll make them sit back and watch us improvise their lives right back to them. Improvisation. <laughs> Spanish Aki Presents premieres July 16th. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Hola, Nesea. Spanish Aki Presents. <laughs> <laughs>